The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Friday, August 4th, 2017. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. You know, I always had this thought about TV morning shows, and I don't even mean the network ones. I mean, hey-ho, Elkhart and Cheyenne today, you know, happy, bubbly, maybe not the most intelligent people. I always wonder, so the people on those shows, the people who do well and thrive as hosts of those shows, is it better to be a smart person who knows the audience and can play kind of stupid or not allow his or her erudition to show? Or is it just better to be essentially that kind of a silly person? I think Fox and Friends is helping answer that question. But I was thinking of this as I was reading the Donald Trump transcripts with the presidents of Australia, prime minister of Australia, president of Mexico. And so the question I always had with Trump is, I don't think he's a mental giant, but how simple, how just blunt and simple is he really? Or is he maybe a bit smarter than that, but when he goes on stage, knows who his audience is and knows how to play to the audience? And I got what I think you and I both suspected. He just is that guy. He has good political instincts, right? He says, you know, the Mexican president says my position is and will continue to be that Mexico can't pay for the wall. And Trump says, but you cannot say that to the press. The press is going to go with that. And I can't live with that. You cannot say that to the press. I cannot negotiate under those circumstances. And the president of Mexico says, yes, I understand very well, Mr. President. But the whole time, he is just hitting the same exact talking points, showing in a private conversation, you know, semi-private conversation, I guess it got leaked, that he is that guy. He was talking to uh, Turnbull, Malcolm Turnbull of Australia, and he said about a treaty to take refugees, I don't know what we got out of it. We never get anything out of it. START Treaty, the Iran deal. I do not know where they find these people to make these stupid deals. I'm not going to get killed on this thing. And then Turnbull says, you won't. And then Trump says, yes, I will be seen as weak and ineffective in my first week by these people. This is a killer. See, Trump's genius, this goes to show again, wasn't that he knew the audience and knew how to read the audience and give the audience what he wanted. It's that He is the audience. Oh, and by the way, as I'm speaking about analogies in the Trump administration, uh, I was on the show Left, Right, and Center, and they asked me, do you think General Kelly will be able to uh, right this ship? Do you think it'll be a pivot? So maybe it was the, you know, phraseology or the imagery of ships, but I just came up with this. I said, here's what I think an effective chief of staff can do. Um, Maybe instead of the Trump administration being the Hindenburg, it's the Titanic. So it definitely goes down, but not as quickly and not in as big a ball of flames. Here's what I wanted to add. And if you hear that on the show, you'll hear me making that point and saying, I knew he was going to say this. Here's what I wanted to add. I did some research. Did you know the survivor rate of the Hindenburg was twice that of the Titanic? That there were 90 people aboard the Hindenburg and about 60 walked away, but about two thirds of the people on the Titanic died? I did not know that. Now we do. I don't know if Kelly wants to be Hindenburg or Titanic. It does seem that those are his choices. On the show today, well, it's a, for you Slate Plus listeners, there's a bonus segment. We call that a knockbat. And in the spiel, as I said, it is an antan twig. 
This is just a deluge of words that aren't really in dictionaries. But don't worry, because before that, it's time for Maria Bamford, the BAM, as no one calls her. She is great and she is surprising. She will excite your mind and imagination. In addition to tickling your funny bones, put your hands together and get ready to laugh at the comic stylings. You will understand why I'm giving you the heavy handhold introduction as we listen to Maria Bamford. Maria Bamford is perhaps uh, best known as, I don't know, she's probably perhaps best known from Target commercials, but her accomplishments include so many Netflix specials. The latest one is Old Baby. She also has uh, the special, 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 which, here's a review, was special. And her TV show on Netflix is Lady Dynamite. Hello, Maria. How are you? Hello, Mike. Uh, I'm just a delight. Uh, delightful. Very good. I'm very good here in Los Angeles. Everyone's, everyone here is amazing in Los yeah. Angeles. That, so. I think it's up, it's up to me to uh, pronounce you delightful. You could be delighted. <laughs> I can be delighted. Yes. Yes. I, I'm an English major and yet I constantly am failing. Where are we on Lady uh, Dynamites? Are there more Dynamites down the pike? Yes. It's going to uh, come out uh, the new season in November. Fingers crossed. That's awesome. I was thinking about the word dynamite, and it's a throwback word. It's a throwback technology. There have been so many more and more potent explosives since dynamite. (laughs) But I guess it just got lodged into language or consciousness, maybe in the 70s, Jimmy Walker, Dynamite Magazine. I don't know if you remember that one. Yes. And it is a fun word to say, dynamite, rather than fission. (laughs) Lady Fission. But there is uh, a there is a retro seventies at least like uh, the title sequence or sequences uh, are a nod to the era of dynamite being the most dynamite of explosives. For sure, I am definitely wearing something a polyester jumpsuit and uh, wiggling around in a way that I thought was seventies like. That was the brainchild of Miss Pam Brady, who is the director, uh, executive producer on the program, who, yes, she wrote the entire series and translated my voice into something that actually was my voice, which is amazing. I I did nothing in terms of the writing. (laughs) I would just come in and have a salad. And so I am very grateful. And it was fun. It was fun to dance around in a jumpsuit. Oh, I didn't know that. I thought that, see, I figured that you had to make the choice of where to put your thoughts in stand-up, where to put your thoughts in Lady Dynamite. I mean, so many thoughts, where are they all going? But basically, that's not true for Lady Dynamite. Someone else is writing it. You're bringing your comic chops and acting. But, yeah. Well, is it the meds that I'm on or is it a general sloth? We don't know. I can't figure it out because I'm asleep. But I just, I don't have it in me to be a, a hydra-headed productivity monster. I could do stand-up. Uh, that is it. That is it. Yeah. So I would just come in and they would make me laugh uh, for hours. And then <laughs> and I'd go, hey, hey, maybe I could say this instead. Because I, I don't really, I, I don't have a huge interest in writing scripts. It certainly is not my gift because it's more of a math problem. I prefer to uh, perform on the light for the lights and the, the, the crowds and the brawling masses. <laughs> 
There are. That's interesting because there are comedians who look at just stand up essentially like math problems, maybe more structured comedians, the beats of jokes. I mean, there is a math to there is a math to joke. A a punchline occurs right after the equal sign, essentially. But when I think about your comedy, uh, it's not that you don't have jokes with punchlines, but it goes in so many directions. It's definitely more SAT verbal than SAT math. Well, thank you. I did get a better score on my verbal. Trying to be a good person. Uh, my sister is a life coach, uh, so I've been trying to challenge her with my negative thoughts. Uh, mm. Marie, you got one for me? Sure. Um, worried I'm too old to be in show business. Mm. Betty White, Dame Judi Dench, Joan Rivers, you're not old enough. Hit me. <laughs> Okay, uh, fear I'll never be in a loving, committed relationship. I don't know, pass, pass. I'll go back, I'll go back. (laughs) Okay, fear of this scenario. You lose everything, including your mind, except the part of your mind that knows that you lost everything. Somehow, you end up in the Philippines, walking the streets of Manila in a bunch of itchy, filthy sweater remnants, plucking a one-string banjo. Bling! No baggage, hitting bottom as a jumping off point. What a gift! <laughs> so let me ask you, when you're doing, when you're doing a show that's not uh, Maria Banford on the ma- marquee, when people yes. are coming in, you can see a number of comedians, and the MC gives you a little intro, typically, what's a good thing for him to say to orient the audience? Is there a little bit of patter about, all right, now you got to pay attention for this one, <laughs> that sort of thing? <laughs> I can bomb any moment of the week, any day. It is so dependent on the audience. It really is. Uh, so even if somebody says, you guys, you know, seriously, you guys, she's my good friend. She's super funny. Like, like it does not, it does not matter. Like Dave, the, the audience, you know, has to, to be in the, in the mood for it. And, um, uh, yeah, and and sometimes they are, sometimes they are, and sometimes they're not, and uh, and I I get it, you know. I I love pop music, and so mm-hmm. if I if I thought I was going to go see music, and what I consider to be music, of course, is uh, "Bitch Better Have My Money" by Rihanna, mm-hmm. uh, and then all of a sudden it was like a discordant string quartet of Bartok, <laughs> I'd be like. Uh, what? And I already ordered a, a bottle service for me and my friends. I'd be pissed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No matter, no matter if the MC were like, "All right, now this is the Eroica Trio. Rihanna loves them. Trust me. <laughs> Musicians that you like respect the Eroica Trio." <laughs> yeah, I'd be like, um, "I don't care. I came out here because it is." <laughs> It's my birthday. And um yeah, no, I mean it, it just it depends on what kind of mood you're in and um and everybody every individual is in a different mood. That's the fun part is the unpredictable ability of it. Now, let me ask you about this is probably something that you've thought about a lot, but I haven't or I haven't heard the answer. So, most of your specials you talk about your time in mental hospitals and yes. going through a lot of uh, self-discovery in terms of uh, depression and OCD. Now, obviously, every comedian you could ask them where do your thoughts come from? But with you, 
there are books written about where your thoughts come from. One is called <laughs> exactly. the DSM-4. So it seems that a part of a comedian's job is to think of things that are taboo, uh, things you wouldn't expect and put it in funny form. But I've been reading up on you and listening to you and how you were constantly barraged by these thoughts that you didn't want. So was it a little bit different for you, do you think? Like uh, you were naturally drawn to the taboo and maybe the calculation became, you know, how to know what's a funny taboo and how to like disregard regard the stuff that might be too off-putting? I think it's varies from person to person, but every, I think comedians, it's like you, you have to talk about it, whatever it is, even if it's about something, somebody might say is banal, but it is extremely frustrating to you. If you meet uh, Jerry Seinfeld, he is obsessed with things like socks or, mm-hmm. you know, like the way, like certain things that are, are, um, irritating in everyday life like i think it's real you know um tell me if this is accurate for much of your life you uh, struggled with having thoughts that you didn't want right you were barraged with thoughts that you tried to that that troubled you and i think i heard an interview where he said you were 35 until you googled what these thoughts might actually mean right you didn't want to talk about them and i'm wondering if since part of comedy is to think of thoughts that others wouldn't necessarily think if there is i don't know if i'm saying it right a way to channel this natural instinct you have or if that has nothing to do with the comedic process that you just happen to have these you know uh this compulsion to think these thoughts um i think that it's a little bit different just in terms of for me anyways the ocd thoughts they were very limiting to me as a human being right. you know just like an eating disorder or whatever which i've also experienced it's a way of like other obsessions are a way of coping with an emotional trauma in life or just a mental illness or whatever like they they aren't necessarily creative like i was only able to take those thoughts mm-hmm. and verbalize them when my mental health was taken care of like i was given therapy and meds and those kind of things so on that level i just i mean i know that that has been linked um bipolar has been linked to creativity before but i i'm not sure if until it's treated if you can actually utilize that barrage of thoughts until you you have some outside help if it does that does that answer the question it does it know. does well it does and it also touches on that a lot of your comedy is playing with the idea of and you know just saying things about mental illness and i know that there's a calculation which is you know how much how much honesty you get into and how much is exaggerated for comic effect yeah yeah and I guess I don't always know. I don't know at all. Right. <laughs> I don't know. I don't feel like anybody has to be have any issues with mental health to be a phenomenal artist or creative person. I just don't think that's true at all. That being a depressive or, or whatever it is, is helpful to being creative. I just, I don't know. I think that's also a myth in my although, opinion. Although we once did a report about comedians and the sub the the thesis of the report was that every comedian possibly with the exception of jerry seinfeld has some (laughs) sort of mental illness and you go down the list and it's very and almost every comedian i asked this to said yeah it's pretty much true and i would say wait that's not a cliche you got to be kind of crazy to do it they would say no it's pretty much true i don't think i just don't think that's true um we should have talked to you 
Yeah, I don't know. I just think there. I've met plenty of comedians who maybe they verbalize more what's going on in their lives or their uh-huh. thoughts, but are just as functional or dysfunctional as any other human being. I mean, if you talk for ten minutes to anybody. Like, I don't care who it is. Something weird's going to come out. Like, I mean, like, there's just a tremendous amount of things that go unspoken in everyday life. And th- that comedians, the fact that they speak about it does make them targets of like, oh, gosh, you you have those thoughts, not me. Okay. Personally, from what I've met, uh, the comedians I've met, it's not a negative judgment. But I think it tends to be more true among comedians than, say, relief pitchers or long-haul truckers. That's all I'm saying. Well, we can agree to disagree. Yes. And uh, we could also agree that we do need that study on long-haul truckers. Oh, my God, (laughs) for sure. How are they? And you know what? That is one of my deepest desires for sports is them when they do their pre- and post-game analysis to have an emotional element to it. Ooh, that would be good. I would be so much more into watching football if there was like, yeah, I love this game. I love, I'm really excited for the game today. You know what? I'm good at this game. And, you know, it just makes me think about how, uh, you know, just because you're good at something doesn't mean you should do it. Uh, (laughs) I mean, my mom loves football. My mom, it's not really my passion, but, uh, (laughs) you know, like to to hear those specifics, which I'm sure exist. Right. Um, I think a lot of these sports things, I just went to a Dodgers game on, um, last week and it was like, you know, they say, oh, what, what does this Dodger up to? What is he like? Very vague, very likable things, Mm -hmm. very marketable. Like hunting and fishing in the off season does some charity work with, Mm -mm. uh, Guatemalans. Yeah. I I do not believe it. You moved here from Cuba and you're not feeling stressed, scared, alone, you know, like having all these weird things about, I'm sure, financial anxieties. Uh, Like, that's what I want to hear in the pre and post game analysis. I just made $100,000. I kind of don't know what to do with it. Do I put some of it in savings? Some of it in checking? My mom's here. She's happy, but she's drunk. And the coach, he's not making eye contact with me. It's weird. He ices you out. Maria Bamford is, well, she's Lady Dynamite. That's coming on soon. And her latest Netflix special, which is available because that's how Netflix works, is Old Baby. Thank you. It was great talking to you, Maria. Thank you so much, Mike. Thanks so much for having me. I loved it. All right. And now the spiel. It's an antan twig. The old English word for a three-week period. Every three weeks, asterisk, bottom of the page. These seem to happen more than every three weeks. That's true. Just go with me here. Every three weeks, we gather together and we talk about all the things Mike got wrong. Turns out I am quite ignorant about the geography of Washington State. I talked about Pasco, Washington. Sam Merrill says, yeah, Pasco's in the middle of a desert. I was talking about how hot it was getting. Heather Kinnon from Pasco says, high desert plateau frequently has over 100 degree temperatures in summer. I stand corrected. And then I also said that, asserted that Vancouver, Washington, oh yeah, that's right across the border from Canada. I don't know what I was thinking. Yes, I do. Vancouver, Canada. But no, Insanely, they take Vancouver, Washington, and instead of putting it near Vancouver, Canada, 
you know, like New York and East New York or Kansas City, Missouri, Kansas City, Kansas. They take Vancouver, put it way down in the south of the state. In fact, Vancouver, Washington is further south than a lot of Oregon. It's a big suburb of Portland. Who knew? Apparently, everyone in Vancouver, Washington. Also found out this fact, which is more intriguing than a fact. Vancouver has one sister city, Joyo, Kyoto, Japan. Vancouver previously had a sister city relationship with Arequipa, Peru, between 61 and 93. But that relationship ended. Bum, bum, bum. No further details are given. I think there's some good Vancouver, Washington, Peru fan fiction to be written. Anyway, I'll leave that one out there. Now, we did get a lot of mail in these last few weeks, and I think it was because I pushed a lot of buttons. Perhaps you heard my show where I talked about phrases like rape culture and white privilege and taking issue with those phrases. I anticipated that a lot of people would respond in kind, so let me just start reading you some of the letters I got. And this is from Ben Hoyt. Dear Mike, I took great offense to your Canadian softwood lumber reference in the spiel. You admonished Trump for not holding Putin accountable and held up your country's softwood tactics as an example of how he should behave. This is absurd. You're proud of your leadership for bullying your smaller best friend, neighbor, ally, and biggest trading partner over an issue that has twice previously been arbitrated in Canada's favor? Let me say this. The word favor, spelled F-A-V-O-U-R. Think that tells us all we need to know about Ben Hoyt. Thanks for the mail, Ben. Now, the rest of the mail was not as much about softwood lumber as it was other issues. Patty Johnson writes, at Pescami, which is my Twitter handle, P-E-S-C-A-M-I, no one needs you to buy into white privilege. It's simply a fact. You're trying to make racism not about white people. It's gross. Jonathan Holt, you cloak yourself in faux science. While not actually applying those standards to yourself, you built up ambiguous straw men, knock them down, and then accuse them of not being scientific or exceeding the facts. Me. Yeah, I probably have bad breath too. Him. I should have mentioned in the first email, but there's a reason I keep listening, even when I strongly disagree. And then he said, though I agree that the point is stupidly communicated, what I am trying to say is perhaps your belief as far as white privilege goes has something to do with not emotionally connecting to those ideas, and so you have a natural aversion. It means your criteria for persuasion is higher. So that was a, that was a decent exchange. I don't mind when people get upset or come at me. And in fact, with I think almost all the emails and most of the tweets I got, I say something and usually something constructive, like that bad breath quip wasn't the only thing I said to Jonathan Holt. Because, you know, it's something of a dialogue. I know how podcasts work. Uh, I know it's really me talking out to you. But then if people want to talk back to me, I definitely want to listen. I mean, this was a conversation about words and fraught words. I'm not against it. It does bother me a little bit that some people who listen to the gist, and it's not on a radio station, so you have to seek it out and opt in. So some people listen, but then after I give an opinion that they don't like, or maybe it's the way I give an opinion, or maybe this is a straw, an opinionary straw that broke the camel's back, they say things like, I'm not listening again. William Kelly said, I'm willing to give you the benefit of the doubt and attribute your hot take to ignorance or a lack of curiosity if you are willing to revisit the topic after reading up on the idea of white privilege or bringing a guest on the show who understands white privilege, until then we need to take a break. But how will he know? How will he know if I do that? If I read up 
if he's taking a break. Just a practical concern. Kevin A. Kishore writes to The Gist. Hi, guys. I've been listening to The Gist since the first episode. I like Mike Pesca quite a bit, too, having listened to Hang Up and Listen for even longer. Unfortunately, I'm unsubscribing to the podcast. I engage with Kevin A. I think he's going to stick to his guns. I understand. Look, if the show is bringing you down and if you can't stand this guy, there, there are shows I've given up on. I just determined that the host was repeating himself or dishonest or not raising points that I wanted. I understand that. Why put yourself through the torture? But if it's the case that, wow, he has this one opinion that I really disagree with, or he used poor logic in that case, I'm not listening again. I get it. We all have just a certain amount of time. Don't torture yourself. But I listen to a lot of shows that I don't agree with the host with almost at all. I listen to the Ben Shapiro show almost every day. I don't know. I just get something out of the way he phrases arguments and puts forth his rhetoric, um, even when it's stuff I don't agree with. And it's almost always stuff I don't agree with. But I can't convince you away from that point of view. Sam Gray asks, would you admit that white people derive benefit from the oppression of people of color? For instance, black people have a harder time being hired when the employer knows they're black. Therefore, doesn't it stand to reason that white people have an easier time getting hired for the job than if the playing field was level? And to him, I said, yes, that is a good example of white people being privileged by this system of racism, this system of oppression. But I think there are many other instances in which the phrase is applied where that isn't exactly the case. So I acknowledge discrimination, racism, systemic. It's important to say systemic, not just a personal animus, but systemic racism and discrimination. Uh, I acknowledge and I'm very bothered by injustices and deprivations. And so the question is, well, then how could you possibly say, if you're acknowledging all these things, that if there's one category that is oppressed, right, Mike, you're saying that they're oppressed, that by definition, isn't the other category, the one that lacks oppression, can't they be said to be privileged? I think this gets at the nut of the issue. And I don't think so. And here's why. One reason is that the default should be justice. Justice, the system working correctly, is not a privilege. So maybe the white job applicant is in fact privileged if there is this zero-sum game of a job. But I don't think that a white person walking around not getting harassed by the police is a privilege. I think that everyone should not be over-policed. And the reason why this isn't words, well, there's a few reasons. One is, you know, we have to define what we want the default of our society should be. I think it is a dysfunction of society that black people are over-policed. I don't think that it's a nice extra little lanyap that white people aren't over-policed. And the second thing is, it is not a privilege to me as a white person. Maybe in my daily experience, it's a good thing I'm not getting pulled over as much as I would if I were a black person, statistics show. But I don't think it's a privilege that black people are being oppressed in this way. Just, and I'm not even talking about the injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere, MLK quote. Just look at the prison industrial complex. I, as a white person, we, as all people, pay for that. We take non-dangerous people, we put them in jail, right? We hurt the overall economy. Forget anything about morals. I'm not being privileged at all by the police being engaged in over-policing. And when a black person gets killed, I mean, they often have white people who are family members or friends. When Philando Castile was murdered, I remember coverage of the elementary school where he worked and where he was beloved. And it, would, it seemed to me 
uh, from the people who were at that St. Paul Montessori school was majority white. And there's a lot of Asian faces. There were some black faces there. But it's not a white privilege that uh, Philando got killed. It's not a white privilege that white people didn't get killed. The better message is this. It's that the system is broken. The accurate message isn't, oh, the system is working for some. You know, white privilege makes it seem like things are working out for whites. No, when Philando Castile is killed, that doesn't work out for whites either. I have a sturdy ladder, and it might be true that I started from a higher rung than you did. Or even if we start from the same rung, I have a good ladder with solid wood. Your ladder is rickety. The wood is rotten. What should we do? How should we look at it? I say, we look at it like you have a ladder deficiency. We should make your ladder better. Things aren't helped as much if I have to realize that I have this good ladder. The the action item is to make your ladder better. Now, of course, some people would say, you don't have a ladder, you have an elevator. To that, I would say, there's only so far analogies can take us. Okay, this is one kind of privilege that I do enjoy, and it's a privilege that I can bestow. It is the privilege of awarding the lobstar of the Antan twig. It goes to the best listener, and I give it to Bridget Samuels. One day on this show, The Gist, I was talking about the movie Baby Driver and the Empire State Building, and I said, how come it's always the Empire State Building and not the Empire State Building? We live in the Empire State here in New York. It should be the Empire State Building. Same thing with Baby Driver or Baby Driver. Here's what Bridget Samuels says. I happen to have a PhD in linguistics from Harvard. Isn't that phenomenal? And one of the things I study is the exact phenomenon you discussed about stress on Baby Driver and the Empire State Building. The tiny thing you missed about these wrongly stressed phrases is that they're compounds. Truck driver, same stress as Baby Driver. Blackboard in the classroom, same stress as Baby Driver. Compounds with three nouns, like Empire State Building, are great fun. How about Lighthouse Keeper? Someone who keeps lighthouses, a keeper who is slender, oh, a light housekeeper. A housekeeper who dusts but doesn't deep clean, I get it, she engages in light housekeeping. The possibilities are endless. Noam Chomsky wrote about that example in the 60s. Incidentally, compounding is also responsible for the Toronto maple leaves, not leaves. Did not know that. Love it. Bridget Samuels, you are the lobstar of this Antan twig. And that's it for today's show. Mary Wilson, GIST producer, Center, Fordham University, afraid of clowns, chlorophobia, it's a real thing. Vacationing GIST producer, Chris Berube, just wants to go out there, let the game come to him. But really, he doesn't want to go out there. He's been battling agoraphobia and with the roof open at the Rogers Center. He's a little unnerved. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcasts, makes the players around him better which is to say he has a classic case of codependency, which is to say it's classic codependency. So Steve is hoping to reclaim himself in his relationships, which means if you have him on your fantasy teams, assists are going to plummet. The gist. In the offseason, the gist enjoys woodworking, fishing, and hunting, though some say what it's hunting is the repressed source of its rage, a rage that sends it into an inky despair from which there is no return. Until spring training, when it's in the best physical shape of its life. Though at night, the demons. And let me tell you about another Slate podcast. Emily Bazelon, David Plotz, and this week, Ruth Marcus of the Washington Post. 
discuss White House chaos, affirmative action, and prosecutors withholding evidence on the Slate political gab fest. Um, Peru, Peru, du Peru, and thanks for listening.